0: Welcome to my life Chassidus applied, episode two hundred and thirty-two. We have a very interesting, I would even say, controversial program. Many interesting questions and some provocative ones that have come in. So stay tuned. I hope every week's program is interesting and intriguing and relevant and above all applying Chassidus. But this one may stand out a bit. We are in the week of Pashas Vayera, so we'll begin with talking about that. I will also dedicate this program, sponsored by Yecheskel Gutfreund, in honor of his father, David Ben Yecheskel Halevi, whose site is on the 15th of Cheshvan. So it's a good opportunity to welcome you all, to invite you and encourage you to sponsor our programs, which is a community-sponsored program. We depend on your... Generosity, you can go to MeaningfulLife.com slash sponsorships and uh, honor a program or a series of programs in, the, in, the, in honor of or memory of a loved one. And thank you for that. I should also mention that we have our meaningful My, our my Life landing page at MeaningfulLife.com slash My Life where you can submit any question, anonymously, confidentially. And these are the questions, of course, that I respond to week after week. You'll also find there the archives of all programs from the first program. So now we already have 231 programs of my life, episodes of my life, as well as the essays that were submitted this year and the previous years in the annual My Life citizen Supplied Essay Contest. And with that, let us go straight to Pasha Vayera. So, I've spoken about the applied Chesidis messages from Vayera, a number of them, in the previous years, and to cross reference, namely in episodes 87, 137, and 186. So, you can always go there for more. I'll touch upon something which I believe I did not address, and this is an interesting Sikha from the Friedrich Rebbe on this week's Pasha, Tovshin Aleph, Pasha Abbas, Pasha Vayera. I believe it was Friday night when the Friedrich Rebbe spoke. And among other things, discussed what comes at the end of the parashas, of course, the classic story, the story we invoke literally every day in our prayers, and especially on Rosh Hashanah, Akedus Yitzchak, which is where Yitzchak, Avram Avinu, Hashem nisos Avram, he tested Avram, this was the tenth and final test, and the ultimate test, to bind, Akedah means to bind Yitzchak and bring him as an offering. And Avram did not hesitate, and he passed the test. And of course, once he passed the test, there was no need to, God forbid, sacrifice. Yitzhak. It was never an intention in the first place. But there's the expression, the famous expression, that when Hashem says, Hashem Avram, Avram, and, Avram, Avram, and Avram answers, Hineni. Hineni. So Rashi, the Frisic brings, that Rashi interprets, is the expression is, Rashi says, hineni is aniyah shel chsidim. Brings chsidim. That the answer, the reply of chsidim is hineni, which means two things, Loshan Anova and Loshan zimun. Which means, it means a a voice of humility and a voice of preparedness. I'm ready. And Fridika Rebbe goes on to explain there that, um, uh, that, that Anova and chesidus, the difference between anov and a shuffle, a shuffle is someone who does not feel they have any qualities, someone who feels lower than others, inferior to others. anov knows very well his qualities, but he still feels that another person is greater than he is. And he only sees the qualities in another and, see, and feels that there's their superiority. In other places, just as an aside, he doesn't bring it there, Anov is sometimes seen as Moshe Rabbeinu was, of course, the humblest, and and um why was he called humble because not that he didn't know his qualities because he said that Hashem gave me these qualities they're not self man made they're not self made and if someone else were given they would have accomplished more is this the same interpretation as the friedrich Kleber brings or a deeper dimension of it perhaps i'm just adding it into the equation here so the first thing is to be a none of and not know that not say you don't have the qualities you have the qualities but you recognize that you don't become arrogant because of them and you see the qualities of others around you even greater than your own. And the second thing is that you're ready and prepared. That's what Khsid, that's what Rashi says, That That's how Chsiddim respond. What is its lesson to us? The lesson to us is very straightforward. We're talking Chsiddim applied is a perfect lesson from this week's Pasha. All of us will be tested in different ways in our lifetimes. And we know Chsiddim says a test is different than a birur. A test is an illusion. A test means you may think that there's something is, is, is impeding you, and the truth is it's only to test you. bidurim Chassidah says, is an actual challenge. It's a reality that you need to refine. You need to overcome a challenge. And a sayon is a test. It's only there for the gavra. There's, no there's no real thing in, in your way. But it will appear to you as a serious test. And sometimes the test will be to the extreme where you'll be asked to offer something that is very dear to you. As bincha, hafta; as bincha, hafta. Your son, your only son, the one that you love. So in all ways, God makes it very clear that it's something very dear to you, your own biological flesh and blood. And Yitzchak would be Avram's Yiddish. He would perpetuate the legacy that Avram had set up. And yet God says to him, "I want you to bring him as an offering. Bind him." Actually, the word akedis, Yitzchak" is not offering; it's binding of Yitzchak. So, of course, everyone asks the big question: How could God ask a person for such of such a thing? This is like, it's like, in the sense you could say, it's like the most cruel thing possible to take a child, the only child he had with Sarah. He waited all his life; he was a hundred years old when he gave birth to to Yitzchak, and suddenly you're asking. But that's what God will test sometimes: the thing that's dearest to you. The intention was never, God forbid. A sacrifice. There's no such concept of human sacrifice as Achmon al You don't find anywhere such a thing, and here too it never happened. So right away, as soon as Avram passed the test, the Malach comes and tells him that to replace Yitzchak with a sir, that was uh, not not far. But it was a test to see: Do you love your son only simply because of your biological connection to him, or because he's God's gift to you? So what happened after the Echei? Okay, Avram Avinu, it infused the love of Avram to his son even deeper because it's not just the human love. We all know parents love their children. And in love, sometimes we can hurt our children because we sometimes think that we know better. That means your ego, your personality gets in the way. God was blessing Avram with a new dimension of love for his son. That so now you can connect your son to me. That you're loving him not just because you have a natural love. That's beautiful. But that's limited to human to human to, to the mortal love. And it's therefore also limited to human frailties and human flaws and mistakes. But now that you are ready to, to recognize that the reason he's your son is because I gave him to you. And when I ask you to bind him, you listen. And you don't say, It's my son. And Avram understood this, the best proof is that. Just in the same parsha earlier, he prays for his the wicked people of his That God should not destroy the city. How's that possible? Here he's praying, and suddenly here he doesn't pray. Why doesn't he say to God, "It's my son"? Because Avram understood. He may not have understood the end of the story, but he understood this was a test. He understood this was God saying to him something very profound, and he didn't ask questions and he listened and he did it as it quickly. So we will all be tested, and because of Avram, we now have the strength to not give away that which is dear to us, to recognize that that which is dear to us is not yours. It's God's gift. This can be financial money. It can be the love of our children. And that'll help us be, remain honest that when we want something for our children, we think not just what I want. Is this what God wants? And when it's what God wants, then you know it'll be an eternal love that till this day, we never forget the story of Akedah Yitzchak and we invoke it every day. So we say hineni, that's what a chassid says. When you're called upon, when that test will come your way, you say humbly, humility. Humility means it's not about you. That's the key thing here. And you're ready. You're ready for whatever it is that you're asked for. That's what a chassid is. Fridic Rebbe goes on in the sikh and says that the Rebbe Marash said once that the question was asked, he asked the question by the Tzamech um, the asked the question, um, why by Hinaini Rashi says, by Avram's Hinaini, Rashi gives a pirush. And by, when Rabbein was called and he says, Hinaini, there's no pirush on Rashi. So I'm sure the shamikri, you could say, because Rashi relies on what he, Avram said. I'm adding that. And the Sikhi says that the Altarebbe answered, I think it's the Altarebbe, maybe the Tzamech He answered, in sense, it's a very interesting answer. Moshe Rabbeinu was a maskil. Avram Avinu was an Eved. A Maskel is For there's no Pirish, there's no interpretation. An avid is an interpretation. He doesn't go on to explain it, but the explanation is quite obvious. A maskil is a intellectual. Now we have to understand Moshe Rabbeinu was not an avid. We know he was an avid elikim, but I guess lefi erech Avram Avinu, Moshe Rabbeinu was. More of a, a Teda, Chokhmah, and Avromovino's Chesed, Avid, the Avedis Amidas. So for Maskil, there's no beard, this is what he is. Aved has a profundity, the emotional depth of emotional intelligence that goes deeper and deeper, and therefore has a Pirush, a commentary on it. That's what he says there in the Sich. Many different ways you can interpret it. But there's a number of places in the Sikhs that in masculine, someone like the Friedrich Rebbe says in one Sikh humorously, a masculine getav nkop, or naevid getav defis. When, you play, when you're a man in the mind, a person of the mind, so the mind is the most controlling element and you don't have the full emotional relationship that is necessary. Now again, this is no way saying that Moshe Rabbeinu do not have a full relationship. It's just speaking in relation, especially in Pasha Vayeda, the quality of Avramavinu. The Avid. So with that, let us move to now some questions. And uh, we'll begin with the first question is education books on understanding children and their behaviors. Do we need secular sources to teach us how to understand and raise our children? I went yesterday with my base Rivka teacher training class to Toyota Macedo. There we had a workshop on children's temperaments. It was based off a secular book called Raising Your Spirited Child. It discussed nine types of temperaments, how each one has, how each can have an expression in good or bad, and explained how to bring out the good within the child who has the temperament. It was interesting because it almost sounded like it could have come from Chesidus. This fetus, good choices and not good choices, the battle within us. I'm sure godly wisdom is a lot more than just that to explain children and their behaviors. I'm no educated, but bother, it bothers me that we resort to Goyishu wisdom, to raise our children and students. Could it be possible to write a book in the same style as Raising Your Spirited Child, only from sources in Chassidus Tezah? I brought this question to you because I've seen the way you managed to show how Chassidus is so applicable to how we live in every moment. I was hoping maybe you can do the same here. Please let me know what you think. Okay, very good question. We say this, though there's an expression, chachma bagoyim Taimin, meaning wisdom, God blessed the entire human race. And that's why it's absolutely possible, not just possible, we see it practical, that non-Jewish scholars, teachers, doctors, professors, scientists, have discovered and learned tremendous things, and we can learn from them. Teira means God's commands, and God's wisdom, and God's will. Now, what does this really mean? Chochmah, the Chochmah bagoyim is not coming from God. But it's a Chochmah that's mislabbish in the language of Chassidus. Godliness is, is manifest in the laws of nature, in the laws of human beings, in the personality and temperaments of human beings, the study of the behavioral science, and the, behavior, and the, and the psychology of a human being. And that is given, just like we say with the Reif, permission was given for a doctor to heal. In a similar way, not quite exactly, but in a similar way, the idea of probing, analyzing, testing, experimenting, examining, evaluating, and coming up with theories that can be used to improve and better the human condition is definitely the domain of all people. So conceptually, yes, we can learn from that. And just like we can learn from mathematicians and we can learn from uh, physicists and other schools of thought, that's doable. Here it gets more sensitive when you're dealing with uh, matters of the soul. Because once you talk about the nature of the human soul, is that in the domain of Chochmah or in the domain of Tere? And I discussed this at length actually in the early, early episodes of my life because I did a lot of research on this before beginning this program because this program deals exactly with that, applying Chesidus and tera to psychological, emotional, and personal issues. Now, areas that are purely medical, we know, and that you need to go to an expert doctor, an expert expert psychologist, and so on. But there's a lot of overlap areas that are not quite, which we'll talk about in a moment in the next question, that are not quite clinical. So here's what I would say, and I said this back in earlier programs, I'll soon give you the cross-referencing to that that the Teder, the Altar Rebbe writes in the introduction to Tanya, that there's the Eitzes to all in Yonim and Avedis Hashem, which if you read it, and especially when you read Tanya, you see does not just mean ben Adem lemokim, how to daven better, how to serve God better, how to have Ava and to love and awe of God, how to do mitzvahs better, how to learn Teder. He also talks about things like anger, kas, and Atzvus, depression, and kpeda, having a grudge, and jealousy, in chapter twelve and other places, he clearly talks about things also between human to human and human to himself, and clearly coming to say that Torah, lashon hara, gives us directives in that area. So my statement would be is that it's all there in Tanya, which of course is based on svarim, svarim, pisvarim, and that come before the Alter Rebbe. So we can find it in Taylor It's just you have to make an effort. If you can't find it, it's something missing in us, not missing in the books. However, the fact remains that not everybody knows how to derive it from Tanya. So there are definitely individuals who have studied psychology, secular psychology, and as a result, we're able to go back to Tanya and say, ah, now I understand what the Tanya means, which is very possible as well, that sometimes Chachma. Chochmah B'gayim, secular wisdom, can help us appreciate Teirah's wisdom. Do we need to go there? I would say you don't really need to, but practically sometimes we you know, it's a, it's a, a we're an orphan generation and we don't always have that type of clarity. So the things that we know very clear from the rabbeim and especially from the Rebbe who took out from Tanya all kinds of lessons and applied it, things that we, obviously we, we have it right before us. The things that sometimes we cannot find, is it possible to be able to find in another book? Yes, but do we have to go there? I would say not. I have no doubt that we could write books. We have plenty of scholars and plenty of people who, have that, who are astute and have a sensitivity to the human condition that can actually write brilliant books based on chassidus and applying it to, to children or to child psychology or to education. This is what we need. So, my answer to you is yes, absolutely, books like that could be written. Do I have to be the one? I've written my book. I hope to write more. But I think there are many very talented and qualified people. And this is one of the challenges of our times. I would even say the shlichas of our times to create such content. I think it would be gobbled up. People would, would, would love it. But it has to use the original chsiddis without compromising its integrity and its spirit, but applied and written in a language that is accessible and relevant. It could also be done, perhaps, as a collaboration. Nothing wrong with working with a professional psychologist or or therapist who knows their stuff. And someone who knows Tehid and may not know all the modalities that exist. And a collaboration can, can also produce a brilliant work. So my answer is absolutely, we can look elsewhere. Does that mean you cannot find any ideas that exist in the secular world? There are ideas that exist. I would like to believe that we could create that. We wouldn't need to depend on that. But the fact of the matter is, if a book like this was written, I would not say that you shouldn't do research and look what else is written on it. First of all, you may get ideas. Second of all, you may understand from that that those ideas may be flawed and learn from that and how to appreciate what Chassidah says by comparison to the ideas that are already out there. But that's how you write any book. You always look at what's out there, what the so-called competition is, what other material is there, because you don't want to recreate the wheel and you want to learn from that and find your unique edge and the uniqueness in Torah, I see this all the time when I look at different things, then I see, ah, this way, the Taylor's approach to this and this idea is even more powerful. And I actually did that in Toward a Meaningful Life on the different topics I covered, the 31 different chapters, taking a topic, this is how it's usually looked at, the conventional way. And here's the Torah, and Rebbe approach to the same idea, whether it's education, whether it's birth, whether it's retirement, whether it's um, challenging issues like pain and suffering. So that's my response. Now here's a f- another question in the same genre, and then I want to refer you to a whole bunch of cross-references to previous episodes. But first let me read the second question. Therapy. Can we go to a therapist who's not religious or a choset? Similar question, but in a different, uh, from a different angle. Firstly, I'd like to give you tremendous thanks for the weekly program. I immensely enjoy watching and listening every week and firmly believe the amazing work you're doing is truly important and effective to many people. And effective to many people in today's day and age. Perhaps a void which has been long overdue and finally a gap being filled. So thank you. My question is in regard to someone deciding on going to a psychologist for therapy for minor issues, meaning not any real prescribed sicknesses or major mental illness, although maybe the same answer applies. Perhaps more just regular issues which may slightly affect daily life and productivity, like self-confidence Depressing outlook, anger, family relationships, siblings, parents. The question is: I've heard many, I've heard people say, and I've seen written that really any psychology needed is all in Tanya slash chassidis. Again, not referring to real mental issues. But since we can have a hard time applying these solutions and methods, practically the, psych, the psychologist is there to assist you with his licensed profession. Similar idea to the weekly podcast applying Chiddus. Question mark. So does the psychologist need to be a Frum Yid and even a Chabad Chassid who's familiar with Chassidus? Or does a regular psychologist who's just most probably not mixing in any type of Aveda, Zorah, meaning idolatry, getting the same job done? Can I not go to non-Chabad or non-Jewish therapy? I hope you get to answer my question and once again, thank you very much. So my answer is very similar to what I said before. We would hope to believe and want to believe that our education system has brought up a generation of mashpim and mentors. Remember that Abayim emphasized mashpim, especially the Sikhs of the Rebbe, Yud Kislav Tov Shalom Zion, and following that, and Yud Shvat, and and Shvat, and you can look it up and I've discussed it at length in previous episodes. So we have the concept of a therapist already and a soul doctor is the way I would put it. That proceeds. The concept of modern psychology and modern therapy, and that is the Mashbiya, which is another version perhaps of the Asaila l'charav, maybe with some variations of the mentor, the teacher, which is perhaps a variation of what it says in the Pasuk, a kohen asher the Kohen, that the Kohen, the priest, was one of the people people went to for healing and for direction and guidance, not just how to learn pshat in Posuk or how to get a Psakhaloch, a, a, a din and a question, a lucha question, but also for psychological, emotional, and personal challenges. So the concept exists in TED. So you could argue that we don't have people who are trained properly, or don't know how to derive from the Teda these directives. So, but since there's no choice, you go to people who have more training, but you want to make sure that it's a line that they respect, or they even more than respect, and have a recognition and awareness of the Tata values, because there's a lot of psychologists and therapists that just have their own secular values and standards, and they actually suggest things that are absolutely prohibited. So with the guidance of a Rav, sensitive Rav, and going to someone that perhaps is not even Jewish, or not even uh, not Chassid, not, or, or not Jewish, that is acceptable, and we see it all the time. If there's someone that's an expert that could help in marital issues, personal issues, parental children issues, the different issues you mentioned and many others, we see people done it. No one has said an, an Israel that you're not allowed to go to a non-Jewish or non-Torah-based therapist. You just want someone that's sensitive to your belief systems and also sensitive to your philosophies and your ideology. Now, of course, the optimal would be if we would have Frumi Achsidim, who actually can combine the best of all worlds, who are both trained in that, in the secular psychology, or at least know its modalities and its qualities that can help. Because what they really have is developed methodologies. Taylor does not give you a methodology. Taylor, you have to derive the methodology. And here again, we could use many books, we could use guides, and we could use courses. So I would answer is that obviously it's permissible, but with all the sensitivities and subtleties and and, um, qualifications I just made, Now, again, if you can find someone that's a firmini, that's a Tatar-based, that's a chassid, who understands the chassidus of it, then, of course, you have really the best. That's definitely the best approach. The question is, do we have enough, and do they respond to all the needs that are out there? So that's how I would respond to this. Now, this is just the tip of the iceberg. I'm specifically not going to repeat everything I've already discussed on this topic, so I'm going to give you now references. First to the psychology part, psychology and chassidus, and that is episodes, literally episode one. I began with that. 101, 135, 136, 224, and 225. Now you can simply go to Meaningful mylife slash my life, and you can search by these episodes. They're also time-stamped on YouTube, so you can actually go directly to the topic at hand. Also, regarding the idea of, of uh, using secular education or secular wisdom, So, these are episodes 24 through 27, 49, 153, 202 and 203, 209 and 221. Okay. With that, let us go to the next question, completely unrelated. And um, this is regarding Shluchim and shlichus. So, questions come up like this very often. I try to pace them. I've talked about this topic as well a number of times. Somewhat sensitive topic, and I try to address it in the best way I can. Not based on any politics, not based on any agenda, not based on any partisanships, but based on what the Rebbe wants of us. And uh, I hope there will be mechaven to the Kavona. But it's always, whenever we're talking about this, it's un- inevitable that someone may be offended, either from one side or the other side, as you'll see. But as I said, I think we have to put our heads together with humility. Anova and Zimun and preparedness to try to see how we address these issues that are bothering people and affecting people's lives. So this is the question, what should our attitude be to quote-unquote non-official shluchat? Non-official, of course, means not sanctioned by official Chabad, Merkis, etc. So I've talked about this topic. Let me begin right away with uh, length. In episodes 25 and 26, in episode 88, 208 and 209 and uh, ever since then I've received comments some of them I saved and now I decided I'll speak about a few of these questions three namely three questions among many many that are still need to be covered but I hope this will cover the details I may not have touched upon but above all really complementing that which that complemented by these episodes I just referred you to and I strongly encourage you to listen to them if you're interested in this topic because I'm not going to say everything over, repeat everything I've said then. I'll try to add or sum up, and so on. So the first question is, what should our attitude be to non-official shluchim? Do we accept them? Do we reject them? A second question that came in, Rabbi, dear Rabbi Jacobson, thank you very much for your amazing shluchim that you do. I wanted to respond to a letter you read from someone. This is a letter, a letter I read, I believe, back in the 200s, I'm not sure which program, but a letter I read from someone, a letter you read from someone who's not an official shliach under Merkis, yet completely dedicated to the Rebbe Shlichus. Our case is similar and perhaps even more complex. My husband and I run a successful Chabad house for six years, Baruch Hashem. Yet because of Chabad politics and territorial wars between Shluchim and our state, we are not Shluchim under Merkis. It took us a while to come to peace with this and not to get discouraged, with the fact that while our family is 24-7 serving a shluchim of the Rebbe, others, on the other hand, who might not be as involved, are honored at the Kinnus. For several, Kinnus is the annual international um, convention of all the shluchim and ambassadors and emissaries that come together, actually, in a few weeks from now, around Rishchidosh Kislev each year, around November time. For several years, there's a second Kinnus for all great dedicated shluchim who, for formal or informal reasons, don't go or refused to participate in the Kinnus of Merkis, the official Kinnus. Last year, they added a Kinnus for Shluchis as well. It means women Shluchim, and Shluchis, feminine version, as well. And it was a great platform to exchange experience, recharge spiritually and emotionally. Every chassid who's involved in the Rebbe shlichis is welcome to participate in this Kinnus without having to prove a status. I wanted to encourage you in your shluchis and to know this is a letter not to me. This is a letter to the person who wrote that they've been either, I guess, taken out of the system or they're no longer official. So this person is writing to them. I wanted to encourage you in your shlich to know that you're not alone in your situation and there are thousands just like you. This is this person writing. I don't, I don't vouch for that number, but that's what this person is writing. The Rebbe is the one who chooses you to be a shlich and not an organization. Otherwise, you would not be in your position today. And while it feels motivating to be honored at the Kinnus, it is not what makes you a shliach. Erase the word official or not official from your lexicon because your status is not, dedicated by, is not decided by an organization, but the Rebbe himself. And if you're serving as a shliach, the Rebbe chooses you. The Rebbe chooses you. I wish there was a way to bring unity to both Kinnus' Ashlochim, and we would all be united together, Mashiach, now. Okay. One more letter, but I want to comment on this. So, as you know, I read these letters uncensored, whether I agree or disagree with them. I want to make it very clear, because I believe a platform should be had where anybody can express themselves. Obviously, I would not read something that is offensive or obscene or inappropriate. But if it's an honest, sincere um, comment or letter, I will read it. That doesn't necessarily mean I agree. If you go back to the episodes I referred you, I spoke firstly about a tzetl from the Rebbe, and I think it's important to know. A note from the Rebbe that he says, "Establish uh, appointing shlichus is Shayach to Lamlach, Mel Merkes, Lin Yon So the Rebbe wanted a Seder, and he appointed an organization that the Rebbe himself heads and headed, and that is that appoints Shluchim and makes sure there's an order and it's done the right way. Can there be mistakes? Can Merkes and the people that are involved today do things that are not always correct? Of course, human beings are human beings. We're not talking about the Reb. We're talking about the Rebbe's people. But what I've heard, and I've addressed this as well, Merkus is working hard to try to give recourse and make sure everything is done according to Tera, according to the Rebbe's intentions. So today, the concept of somebody going and saying, I'm firing you because I, you work under me as a shliach, is not so simple. You can challenge it. And you can go, like, like all Tera does, if there's a disagreement, you go to Din Teir, and you have tzetlach from the Rebbe that says... Go to a Tehra or go to Azablah and bring all the tainus. And everybody, this is not a dictatorship. Anyone can do whatever they like. And on both ends. So I encourage, obviously, I, I'm, who am I? But I'm just saying, I would encourage, obviously, America's, thank God, is doing this, that everybody follow Taylor and Allah, and we'll be able to resolve a lot more of our issues, even when we have disagreements. Obviously, the Rebbe knew there would be disagreements, and he created a system for that, too. So I find it sad, and it makes me cry to hear about hundreds or thousands of shluchim that are not sanctioned shluchim or not official. And I agreed, conceptually, the Ebeshtah makes people shluchim. The Ebeshtah sends an Eshamah down to the Mata, that's a shluchim from God. And the Rebbe wanted every person to spread Teir and chassidus. But the formal fashion, there has to be a Seder. And that's why we have the Sikha Aira Tavshim, Memzayin, and others that I quoted in the cross-reference episodes, where the Rebbe speaks about a so gvul on one end, but also not to limit and make sure that everybody has the capacity. So it makes me cry that there's a situation like this and that Merkis, and all of us can't put our heads together and figure out how to do this in a peaceful way, even if there may be different approaches. And I believe that is the effort, and that's exactly why I wanted to read this, not because I want to voice some dissent, or give voice to one party against another and say, okay, now we have two kinusim pitted against each other. God forbid, it's the last thing I want to do. On the contrary, to, to recognize that there is this painful situation, there is a situation that we can remedy. There's no question we can remedy. People want to give their lives and giving their lives 24-7. Why can't there be a way to embrace them in some way? And if they did something wrong, fine, we all human beings. We make mistakes on both ends. Like in any type of situation, a shalom bias. And if we can put our heads together and figure out a way, and maybe there needs to be some compromise, maybe there needs to be a wise approach, I think case by case. And I've seen situations where there were disagreements between shluchim for years, and peace has been achieved in different cities, you can follow that. So there's hope. And the point of these letters is not to say, this one's right, that one's right, but to find a way, a third approach, that will resolve the issues once and for all. Can this be done? I absolutely believe it can. So I thank you for writing it, but at the same time, things have to be done in order. The fact that it's not perfect yet that doesn't mean we can just two wrongs, don't make a right. We have to figure out a way. So I'm not going to tell you not to continue doing your work or, and leave your job. I will say is, put your heads together, meet others and figure out a way to make it work where it could be done under Merkis, in a way, that, way the way that Eba wants. <speaking in Hebrew> Which leads me now to the next uh, question, which is in the, same, in the same family. Being pushed out of shlichus. This is not so much about what you said or didn't say regarding the family taken out of official shlichus, all referring back again to episodes I spoke about a while back. This is more about the fact that I don't think most people understand their normality and the ramifications of such happening as al Islam. Let me start by saying that I applaud and look up to all the shluchim whose self-sacrifice, humility, and service to Hashem and our Rebbe is extremely admirable and impressive. Yeshekech to all of them. If you choose to read this publicly, I'm not sure that this coming week is the right one, since the shluchim who need to hear this will be busy with the kinis, and would be a lot more constructive if shluchim themselves alone hear this. Okay, but I decide, yes, I decided to read this. I don't know the particular story of the writer, but I could talk for myself and others. Removing someone from Schlichis or not allowing more shluchim in an area that has enough room for more, in my opinion, is spiritual murder. I remember hearing words something like avoiding swallowing each other alive from the Rebbe. Meaning the Rebbe painfully understood the enormity of ugly politics and how its effects, also, how its effects are likened to murder. As you know very well, the story of Chanukah is all about spiritual life and about risking one's life for Tehid and Mitzvahs. Yes, I and my family are victims of the injustice of certain shluchim, etc. The repercussions were enormous. No, we did not give up shlichus, but the name of being unofficial has been a big thorn for us. My advice to those whom this letter fits is think a million times before you fire anyone. Yes, it is murder, real murder. Everyone has at least one Mila that you could use to the fullest, even if that is not the reason you brought the shliach out in the first place. Take the Mylas of the person you brought out and use it to the fullest. Of course, I'm not referring to a real troublemaker if they exist, of which a bezdin or respected mediator has ruled on. But in general, firing someone from shlichus is not only hurting big time the person and family that you brought out, but all the people they would have brought closer to Yiddishkeit. I believe you brought sources from the Rebbe in episodes 19 and 25 regarding this important subject. The huge ramifications of not allowing more shluchim to come out when there's room for more fits under the category of spiritual murder, in my estimation, also. I I know these were sharp words, but I don't think we have a choice to ignore things anymore. Again, I think it may be more beneficial if it's read to the shluchim themselves than on this series, but I leave it up to you to make that decision. Thank you. Okay, so here you get to hear the pain, and that's the main point. This is not about pointing fingers and saying someone's doing something wrong. It's not the goal. That bichlal is not a way, in general, to fix things. The goal is to put our heads together with chassidim. The Rebbe said the achdus from will lead us to Mashiach, our unity. And our unity in the thing that's most precious, the cherished, Crown Jewel, of the Rebbe Shlichus itself, is, is one that is the most of all things we want to make sure is pure. Human beings are human beings, but there's recourse. The Tehra gave us an approach. And the approach is using Tehra, using a uh, dintet if necessary, better, a mediator, and if necessary, a dintet or a zablah, and do what it has to be done. Obviously, go with more uh, dentator of last resort if nothing else can be resolved. There's no question, if people use a little chassidishkeit, and a little bitl, And everyone recognizes the bigger picture that we're representing instead of just myself. With all the good L'Shem, Shemayim, Kavonis, all the intentions, the pure intentions, there's no question we can find peace, and not just peace, but harmony, and work together, give Nachas to the Rebbe the way the Rebbe deserves for what he's given us. So, that that covers that topic. Go down to another topic, another interesting, provocative, and controversial topic. This is the topic of Shalaya Sani Isha. I know it sounds interesting that after all these episodes I never addressed it directly. I did address it tangentially. So let me address it. The question is, how do you explain the blessing, the morning blessing of Shalaya Sani Isha? Thank you, God, for not making me a woman that a man says every morning. Okay. And here's the detailed question. Thank you for being a wonderful resource. My question is about the Brok of shalayas San isha. I know the reason given is because women have less mitzvahs and have it harder, etc. For some reasons, these answers do not satisfy me. One of the reasons is it makes me feel like davening is completely unintended for women. I know it's not an obligation, but we are encouraged to daven. But I feel like this. Is, but I feel like the siddur is not actually written with us in mind, meaning the women in mind kind of turns me off of praying with a siddha in a conventional manner. Some people say, "Shasani karetzene, which means that you have created me as, you, as you've chosen or as you've willed. But it's not even written in the siddha. Why would that be? Also, the idea that slaves and non-Jews and then women respectively all have less mitzvahs just feels like a ni- not a nice thing to be celebrating, thanking Hashem for. Hard for me to articulate, but for example, non-Jews can change their status and hopefully slaves as well. But women can't. I'm having a hard time appreciating the answers focusing on the fact that we're different. I fully agree that we're different. Just feel it's unnecessary to be thankful and celebrate at the woman in your life's, in your the woman in your life. the, the celebrate at the women in your life's expense, at the woman's expense. Something about it makes me feel inferior. Although I'm perfectly happy to be a woman. Additionally, if the siddur was actually written just for males. Why isn't that publicized, and why would that be? Addition. I want to add to my question. There's something that bothers me about saying women are on a higher level, so don't need to actually fulfill, so they don't need to actually fulfill the mitzvahs. I find that apologetic. Using that same logic, is a non-Jew or a slave also higher level? I don't think so. I'm not looking to be on a higher level, and I'm okay being different. I have a problem with the negativity of these brachas, and I find any answers that I have so far heard lacking. Okay, so first let me give you some cross-referencing where I've spoken about the issue of are women second-class citizens or inferior, not just based on this blessing, but based on many other uh, (coughs) seeming tailored concepts that some may think imply as such. These are episodes 11, 65, 67, 98, 106, 127, 146, 147, and 150. I know that's plenty, but this is a big topic and it deserves that and perhaps even more. So let me address this in maybe a more microcosmic fashion. But also, there's no way to get around without dealing with the big picture. I'm a man, as you can tell. So in a way, you can say that I have no credibility when it comes to this because the men, yeah, the men can find all kinds of good answers. Why don't we talk to women? So to be very honest, um, I actually talked to quite a few women besides the ones in my own life starting from my mother and the woman in my life. I have sisters and I have family. And it's interesting to me what, they, what their response is when you ask them, so what do you think about this blessing? All the healthy women that I've ever met that I've spoken to about this topic all say it does not bother me at all. Why doesn't it bother me? Because I feel very intact and very confident and very secure with my role. God sent me to this world and I don't feel in any way second class and I grew up in an environment that empowered me as such. And the Rebbe empowered the women as such. The blessing is a technicality. Fine, go find the reason why you make that blessing. Some don't even know the reason, don't really care. I found that to be very interesting. It didn't bother them, even though they're women. So perhaps one has to go back to the foundational element, which is the first statement in the Torah itself. Where's the first time the Torah talks about men and women? In Bereshach, God said, Nasa Adam we will create a man. Well, not a man, a human being, I should say, Kid in our image, in God's image. And what did he do? He built that zocher and built male and female, a human being in the divine image. Clearly, two equal parts, an androgynous creature, as Rashi in commentaries explain, male and female. There's no reference there to one being superior, one inferior, and both together is the divine image. Then they'll be split and then they'll search for each other, and that's the concept of a soulmate. Just, just stop right there. Is it possible to say that the God, which is the base, this isn't a medrash, this isn't a commentary, this isn't some obscure mystical uh, Zohar or something cryptic. The God that created the human being says, I created male and female. In my image, divine image. Is it possible that this same God would say, now make a blessing? Don't, for not making me a woman, but for not making me what another part of God's image. So I would suggest that those that feel completely comfortable, because they know that's the foundation of it, and the bracha has must have some other meaning, because it can't contradict the foundation of the Torah itself, which is that a woman is creating the divine image. And how you make a blessing? What the, thank you for not creating me in the divine image or the feminine side of the divine image? Why? So clearly the blessing has a different meaning and significance, and it is exactly what you said. It is about mitzvahs. Why can't you say shasani ish, for making me a man that has more mitzvahs, for making me a man who has the the tools and instruments that a woman doesn't even need because she can connect without those mitzvahs? Why can't you just say it in a positive way? Wouldn't some come across derogatory? So clearly, and I'll answer that in a moment, clearly the one who wrote it was not, coming, was not written in any way to quote, suggest anything that's inferior or sort of dismissive. Like some people like to say, this blessing came from primitive times. Because anyone may, who, who composed that blessing has to be consistent with the chumash that I just read, that I just cited, which is that a woman is part of the divine image. So they, they didn't even have a hava meaning. They didn't have a consideration that this would offend someone, because in a healthy environment, women would not be offended, because this blessing doesn't in any way take away anything from them. So why talk not in the positive? So when the answer is given, the commentaries explain why not the positive, because you cannot make a bracha shasani because nuach la'odam shalei nivra mishanivra. Complete technical reason. You can't make a blessing because Shammai's opinion, which is the ruling, is that life is not pleasant. You can't make a blessing in the positive. So you make a blessing, not saying not a woman, saying not a man, basically. Thank you for making me not, not a man. Because you can't say it in the positive. That's the case, The whole thing has nothing to do with uh, describing women and men. In addition to the very basic thing that a woman's life, a real healthy woman's life, is more difficult than a man's. She carries a child. It affects her whole life. As much as she accomplishes and all the multitasking, it's difficult. Now, we're not suggesting that a man is suggesting that we don't need to have women in this world because without that we wouldn't have life. But there is a type of acknowledgement of understanding your role, that's really what it's about. It's meant to be a positive message to men to live up to their role and in no way takes away from the woman's power and her woman's strengths and so on. The fact that, that right before, before you say about the slave and about, the, about the, the, the non-Jew, two different reasons altogether. They're not bunched together. They're not equated. To say thank you for not making me a slave because Toyota helps you free yourself from every form of slavery. That's true, We want to get out of that situation. As far as a non-Jew, a non-Jew also has created a the divine image. But there is a quality that a Jew has, and you're thinking, why don't you say thank me for making me a Jew, for the same reason, because of the you say it all in the negative, not in the positive. But the biggest thing to remember is that the big picture here, the big picture has nothing to do, if you're a woman that understands what Torah wants of you, what God wants of you, the question won't bother you in the first place. Now, one more thing I want to add about davening itself. It's true. The mitzvah for tefillah is mostly on men. Now, why men? Just like other mitzvahs. Because a man connects through actions that he does. And a woman is connected by her mere being and existence. A woman is not bound by time mitzvahs. Why? Because her existence itself is connecting to God when she takes care of her children, when she's giving birth, when she's pregnant. So to give her a mitzvah to do something, she's connecting to God. What better connection is to carry a child? A man can't carry a child. So he has to find ways to connect. Mitzvahs are connections. I know some people see this as patronizing or, or apologetic. Not at all. For Raya, best proof on Shabbos. You're not supposed to put on tefillin. Shabbos is the holiest day of the week. It should be the best day to bind your mind and heart. Because Shabbos itself binds your mind and heart. That's not patronizing. That's saying a man who wants to put on tefillin on Shabbos. It's not. We already have the connection that tefillin provides. Now a woman is Shabbos all week long. Shabbos, Malkus of the Queen. So her not putting on tefillin is not a page. It's saying she is like tefillin. She's a walking film, a walking bond to God. Now, obviously, women have choice as well. And that's why there are mitzvahs that women also have. We're also human beings. There are also human beings in this world that need their connections. But there are many things that are part of their physiological, spiritual, and emotional being that connects them to divine in, in a natural way. And there's, like we say, love is a state of being for a woman. And for a man, it's an action, a verb. And it's a state of being, you don't always have to do an act to accomplish that. And now you'll see this in many things where, like in this case, Shabbos itself accomplishes that, which during the week you need the action. So action is very valuable, but there are times you don't have that. So the brachas, the birchos, shachar in the morning, is, yes, is, is a very male-oriented thing, because prayer in general, and the synagogue as well, which is not the center of life, is giving men an ability to humble and sublimate their aggressive masculine features through prayer, through synagogue, through so on, through studying, where a woman has that refinement naturally inherent within her, also has a need to grow, but in a different way. And many ways, there's overlap, in areas there are differences. Okay. If people want some follow-up questions to that, please don't hesitate to contact and write to me. I want to, we have quite a few more things to cover here. I want to make sure I cover everything. So let me. I mean, I, what I'm going to do is going to go to follow up right now. We'll do follow up, and then, you know what? Let me go the other way around. Since we're talking about women, so someone wrote a question about this past parsha that we read yesterday, Sara, when they go to the Mitzrayim. So let me address that. Messages to children. Are controversial verses in the Torah being taught to our children in the proper way? But that's preceded by another question, hiding Sarah in a, in a box? So let me read. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, why is it that so many teachers of young children, particularly girls, are comfortable teaching the Medrash about Sarai being kept in a box when Avram arrives in Egypt? The way my six-year-old daughter described it, it seemed this was being taught as if it was integral to the story. Firstly, it is a medrash, which means it's not integral to the story. And secondly, why are we teaching this to little girls? Of course it is Torah and holy, but mentioning it nonchalantly, I believe is dangerous in setting up unhealthy associations with Torah and our girls. I have similar frustrations about the zealous act of Pinchas, which is described to children, but not nearly enough attention is given to the Bnei Slavchad, which appears later in that parsha, the doors of Avtsochad, that demanded part of the Yerusha of their father, showing their strength and their initiative, and they were granted that request. These women can be incredible role models for young Jewish girls, and Rashi even says that none of the women were punished for the chet hameraglim, sin of the scouts, due to their desire to enter the land. We need to be more selective in which midrashim and mefarshim we convey to young girls in order to empower them from a Torah perspective. Can you please comment on this issue? Many thanks. Okay. First of all, let me refer you to episodes 140 and 200, which addresses specifically the controversial verses. Let me begin with the story. The Rebbe brings this story. When the Frida Rebbe, the Frida Rebbe had three daughters. Hannah, the Rebbe Mushka, and uh, Shana, who was killed by the Holocaust. Shem Yinkam Domo. When they were looking for a teacher, a melamed, to teach these girls... So they interviewed different Malam and they requested, the, the, the Rebbe asked, or the Rebbe Rashab asked, the teacher, how are you going to teach the story of Akedah Yitzchok and other such stories? And one of the teachers said, obviously he's going to skip it because he doesn't want to frighten the children. So this teacher was not hired. or yeah. Why? Because teacher, students are, children are pure, to me, mystic. And there's no such thing as censoring something. If it's Tehidus Gdusha, and it won't have any negative impact. And to project adult misgivings and skepticism is not what we need in a teacher. That's the message. So, yes, it is correct that not everything is in Tez Shabiksa, but this thing with Sarah in the box actually is Rashi. And Rashi is Rashi brings it. Why did Avram put her in the box? Because of her great beauty that he recognized. And they were going to a place that was depraved of depraved that's why he also said, I'll, I'm going to call you my sister, not my wife, because they'll kill me if they know that I'm your husband. Because he knew for sure that they will be tempted by her. The box was meant to so-called protect her. It didn't help anyway because they opened the box because they wanted to see for taxation purposes what's in the box. So I agreed to just read something and leave children going home and saying, you know, they put girls in boxes is kind of, kind of weird. If you're going to say it, a teacher should explain and give a lesson. The lesson that we have from this is, not the box, he wasn't put into some type of cage. It was a way of like protection it would be like the equivalent of like covering your face because you're going to people who may misunderstand or abuse the situation. It's a good question. Why didn't he just cover her face instead of putting her in a box? To understand why. But to explain that a woman's beauty is so pure, so beautiful. That sometimes, that's exactly what sneeze is. sneeze is not, is the respect of the dignity of something. Just like we put the arun in the Kedesh kadosh, and we put in a box the luchis. Why do we put it in a box? Why do we put the box in the Holy of Holies where nobody could enter? Not because of anything to be ashamed of. On the contrary, it's so pure that an impure world has to be, has to like not be able to contaminate it. So if someone gave such a lesson and taught the girls, and for that matter, boys as well, and saying, you know, your beauty and your sensitivity, and your vulnerability, and all that you exude, we live in a world where sometimes we need to know that there's a world that's toxic, and not everything is holy, so we in a sense keep things that are holy or so-called covered, then you can explain it quite well, instead of thinking of it purely as a box-box. That's how I would go about it. So I agree that we need teachers who know how to do this, and should do it, and just, just shouldn't read something just because it says it. Now, as far as in general controversial, as I said, if you know how to present things, even the most controversial things in the Torah can be explained. Torah is, Torah chesed. It's a blueprint for life. It's a lesson us in life. And it's wisdom and insight and understands the human condition and is the way God wants us to live. Some things are controversial. We're not going to go through everything right now. But everything can be explained. You just have to know how to explain it. And if you can't explain it, find someone that can. So, It's true, the Bunei Stavchat is a beautiful story that should be shared, especially with girls and women today. But even the story of Pinchas has lessons as messages as well, which I'm not going to go into now, because that's not the immediate question. Okay. With that, can we now go, let's see here. I'm going to move the follow-up to next week. Because of time. I'm going to do the Chassidist question. The Chassidus question is, what is the attitude of Chassidus Chabad to the Ramchal, the Moshe Chaim Lutzato, and his Mesilis Yisharim? That's his classic work, even though he wrote many, many, many works. Why are they not heavily accepted in Chassidus Chabad? Very good question. Okay. So first, a little history. The Ramchal basically lived approximately born something like 50, 60 years before the Baal Shem Tov, and passed away right before, right after the birth of the Alter Rebbe. I believe in Toph Zion as is his passing. He wrote many, many books and in his lifetime he was controversial. The Rebbe, I believe, once said, Amod Nermench, Amod ne He had his own customs, his own ways. And actually in Italy, where he was born, he was forced because he began writing Kabbalah and wrote that a magad was coming to him and preaching and telling him, revealing to him secrets. This was seen as controversial at the time, especially coming in the wake of Shabt Tzvi a century earlier. So he was forced actually to recant that or to hide those books. There's different, different versions. He tried to find people to be sympathetic. He ultimately left Italy and moved to Amsterdam. But in his way, he also tried to find sympathy, and it wasn't that simple, because people were very... Skeptical. I'm talking about authorities. See, even in his time, he wasn't that, it wasn't so, it's So um, he was controversial. Now, what he writes is not necessarily anything controversial. But a brilliant writer and, uh, and has tremendous ideas in his Svarim, including, of course, Ms. shot Shadim. In Amsterdam, he had a little more sympathy to him and they were a little more published. But over the years, his books remained. Some of them were burned, they say. Some got lost. But we have many of them. And they were embraced, interestingly, by the Musa movement, including by the Gero, but not by this Chabad in any prominent way. The question is, not embraced or also rejected? And here you have an interesting combination. We see places where Mesilis Yisharim is actually cited, and you'll see in this interesting parasha about it in a moment. And his Sefer Cheker Mukubal, which is a dialogue between a philosopher, philosopher and a Kabbalist, He's actually cited a number of times by the Samak Tzedek in Ada Teira and by the Rebbe Marash. So to say that he is um, off limits, like, but there are those that are off, the Tzemaq would not cite him, even though we don't have other citations except that Chayker Makubal about Esau but he wouldn't cite him at all if he was not a, a person that you could cite. It's not like one book you could cite, the others you can't. So you see from that. Now, in the Kutta Teira, actually, in original printing in Samak Tzedek, it says in Parsha Bamidbar, the mimer of, in Parsha Nosei, the mimer, da Chof Omid Beis. However, it was later taken out by the Rebbe Rashab. And you could see it in the back of the Kutateira, on the Chof Omid you'll see the Rebbe Rashab takes out the word Mem Samach Yud, So it says there about Tad and Mevil Kedusha, and it says, I am B'Resh is which could be maybe that some Chzadik wrote in the first place, probably, but in later prints it was taken out. I've tried to find out why, and um, I've not come to the bottom of it, but you definitely see that fact. So you see from that, again, that you can't say that it's completely off limits. My, my, my thought theory on this is that, you know, there's a thing called Chzidit and Rebbe Shachsidit. Rebbe Shechidus is obviously Dividele Kim Chaim coming from Lamayla. Shechidus Shechidus is Chassidim who wrote Chassidus with their Seichel. Seichel Anushi. And it was very often looked at somewhat questionable, not because it's wrong, because like, how could you compare it to original Chassidus? Or Kabbalah like the Arizal? So the Ramchal could perhaps be seen as a Chassidus Kabbal Mekubal. I don't say Chassidus, not Chassidus yet, but like a human Kabbalah that is accurate, but Lavdavka has the same so-called authority as the Arizal does. This, I've not seen this, but I'm just throwing that out as a possibility based on. Now we do have. I will just cite a few a few sources that we have. We have a letter from the Rebbe. Let me quote this letter. It's a letter from the year from Yud of shvat Tovshin Chav Gimel. It's printed now Chelik Lametess Lekut Tsisiches page two forty three, and he writes. I want to thank you, I read very carefully, I read with interest, your mimer, your essay, your article on Ramchal. And I want to express my hope. Since you spoke about the author's book, Mesilis Yisharim, as a man of Musar, Musar is like ethics or morality, but vade Yashlim, you'll definitely fulfill, com- compliment, the description of his personality also as a Mekubal, as a Kabbalist. Even though Mes- Mesilis Yisharim, Spread and was just became more known than than his kabbalistic works, but definitely there are works of kabbalah that are worth getting a, a unique a, a specific description, especially in our times. Where to, to, to our to our dismay, there are Swadim and seifrim, there are books and authors Mekarub, who explain the wisdom of kabbalah and also everyone in their own with their own way whatever he likes. Without really being accurate, and they don't take old wine and put it into, into new containers, but they find their own wine. Basically, they take out the old wine and they put their own new wine into it. That's the. So, Nach and it would be much more appropriate to fill these uh, bottles or these uh, containers with uh, vinegar. No, oh, no, no, I'm sorry, let me correct myself, no. It, not only did they put in new wine, it's more correct to say that they actually put in vinegar, which is the opposite of wine. And anyone reading it innocently will think that he already filled up his, his uh, belly, he filled up his diet with Kabbalah and Chassidus. So it would be good, he's basically saying, to write something accurate and include Ramchal as a Kabbalist. I mean, I say it's an endorsement, but it's definitely not a negative. It's a letter from the Rebbe, printed. There's also, we know from the, the Mizitsha Magid, that the Mizitsha Magid once said something positive about, about Ramchal. and his students, as well as some other Tamidim from the Magid, and then there were those that were very negative about it, and actually prohibited the study of it. You also have from the Magid, who once said, that when you read, say, from Hasidus Ramchal, you could see, when you compare it to Hasidus, the value, the value of Hasidus of light over dark. Now, it doesn't mean dark, God forbid, negative, but it means the qualities of Hasidus over that. So, the bottom line is, that we don't have, a very black and white picture. So I just wanted to give everything I have to be able to weigh it all. And as I explained, I believe that it goes into the category of legitimate, because some Tzaddik cites him. The it was cited, for some reason was taken out, maybe because not to give it that type of full authority. And, um, and that's uh, what we'll say about Ramchal. Okay. With that, let us go to the essays of this week. And as I said, I have follow-up, very interesting follow-up, actually, that I really wanted to cover this week, but we'll just do it next week, and that's that. So the three essays are... Essay number one, Guide to Imperfection, from Moshe Goldstein, age 19, Brooklyn, New York, student, Yeshiva dela of Beish Sholem, Postville, New York. Uh, Postville, I'm sorry, Iowa. So Moesha goes, okay, he writes, Jake struggles in his own constant battle. Although everyone wants to do the right thing, he takes it to the extreme. Every detail of his Android has to match his own perfect self-image. He uses this as a case study of what this um, essay is about, is that perfection is our enemy. And goes on to explain that when you set yourself up for perfection, you will always be disappointed. And that the essay, on the other hand, continues to guide to imperfection, which obviously minimizes the role of the ego and these extreme expectations and improper motivation and the collapse that follows. And instead, to realize that each of us have our imperfections and you want to recalibrate your life, he says, through meditation, avoiding precision from the start and perfection, resume after disappointment. And that when you're able to do that, you have a different, much more realistic expectations and much more likelihood of success. Well done essay. Addresses a very good point with a lot of footnotes and sources. Thank you for that. This essay and all these new essays as we read them are posted week by week at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife, the essay section. You could also receive it if you subscribe to Meaningful Life, to our newsletter, to our different offerings. We'll send you a notice when these new essays are posted, as well as other benefits. And I definitely encourage you to subscribe. It's free. You get this and other different resources that we are building, new exciting things coming up, as you'll, show, you'll hear from us. Essay number two is Das, Power for Change, Mayor Arad, age 36, Israel student, Manhattan High School for Girls. Okay, the question is, no, no, my mistake, there's a mistake here. Hmm. There is a mistake here, because one of them is in Hebrew. I said um, Zev Weinstein, looks like the Hebrew one. Just give me a moment, I'm just trying to check. I think there's a confusion here. I think this one actually, Das Power for Change, is Zev Weinstein, 49, Brooklyn, New York. And the next one, what I'm going to read is the person I just read, Meir Arad. So let me just correct myself here. Okay. So Das power for change. The question is, why is it that there are so many things that we know, especially things that can can and definitely will make our lives easier, happier, and more productive, and yet we just can't bring ourselves to do them? In other words, the challenge of implementation execution. And goes on to explain how Das, beyond chokh Bina, has that power. To do that, to be able to take an idea and execute and bring it into action. With all the challenges involved, what is Das? Das is the ability of a person to learn something new in such a way so as to experience it and thereby be a changed person because of it. And goes on with a few steps of how you actually take Das and use it as a tool for this purpose power to change, for change. Okay. Essay number three is in Hebrew. And that's called Change Begins in the Mind. This is Meir Arad, age 36, Israel. And I'm going to check if there's any discrepancies here. But bottom line, this essay is The Power of the Mind. Very well done essay. I really enjoyed reading it. It's in Hebrew. And it talks about there's two parts to a human being. Our behavior and the reasons for our behavior, which is our attitudes. And that's far more important because that's what shapes who we are. And goes on to explain Chachma Bina Das in somewhat of a, I would say, a creative way. With Chochma being fundamental principles, Bina being tavnas means development of ideas, and deis are um, established, established mores or established um, axioms in a person's life. It goes on to say that if you want to create change, you need to change things, not on the behavioral level, but on the mind level. So, of course, using Chassidus Chabad, which is the essence of Chabad, is to do exactly that. So another well-done essay. And again, all these essays can be read online or received in your inbox. And with that, let us conclude this My Life Chassidus Supplied episode 232. I encourage you again to help us in any way you can by sponsoring, by donating generously at MeaningfulLife.com slash sponsorship. Everyone should have a very blessed week, have a Vayeda Dika week, have a Vayeda Gilea Likus. that just like God appears to Abraham, he appears to the Abraham within each one of us, and that we should fulfill our mission, both with the humility necessary and the preparedness, ready. We are ready to take on any challenge. And until next Sunday, we're here every eight, Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Everyone have a very good week. Thank you so much.